Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Joining me today is Shruti Lanka, the Chief Financial Officer at Public.com, a platform that makes investing easy, accessible, and social. Since their launch in September 2019, they've acquired over 1 million users and are valued at $1.2 billion. Before joining Public, Shruti served as Moneyline's Head of Strategic Finance, another emerging fintech startup. But Shruti isn't new to the financial trade. She previously spent time as an engineer at Goldman Sachs and in investment banking at the Royal Bank of Canada. Beyond her core roles, Shruti has worked to empower women in and outside her industry, founding a women's organization while at Moneyline, and now sitting on the board of Women Creating Change, a nonprofit that partners with organizations and under-resourced women in New York City. She holds an MBA from Duke University and a bachelor's degree in electronics and communications engineering from the National Institute of Technology in India, one of the country's top engineering schools. I'm so excited to welcome her to Trailblazers today. Welcome, Shruti. Thank you so much for having me, Simi. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. And I want to start at the beginning because... Unlike a lot of our guests, you actually grew up in Bangalore, and I'm curious to understand how you feel your South Asian upbringing set the foundation for your career pursuits. Yeah, super interesting question. I can say it's probably the first time anyone's asked me that. Wow. (laughs) One thing that struck me when I moved to the U.S. was really how uncommon it was to actually be surrounded by female engineers. Interestingly, then this is equally true of Russia as well, but some countries with greater inequality in many other ways, economic inequalities, actually do see gender parity when it comes to technical fields. My mom is an engineer. And so I think a love for math and science was born very early as a result of the South Asian identity. Yeah. And I think the second kind of factor, which I'm sure you relate to, is just an immense focus on work ethic, right? I grew up around people who really worked extremely hard, valued education very highly. And I think all of those things translate well to the career that I'm in today. And I have all of that to attribute to my South Asian identity. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's so fascinating that you've never been asked that question before, because that's really the goal of this podcast is to have some of these conversations with the lens of identity at the center of it. You know, I'm curious, you go to one of India's top engineering schools. Reflecting back, did you see yourself pursuing finance or fintech or was that happenstance? Great question. I think at the time, if you asked me if I saw myself in this seat, I would most definitely say no. But it is true, I think, that the dots connect backward. Like I said, I grew up in an environment where a love for math and science was just very normal. Actually, fun fact, my whole family is engineers. My brother, my parents, (laughs) all engineers. And so these super smart people that I was surrounded by were just terrible with money. Just really got off, like, you know, lost money multiple times on poor investments. Unfortunately, received the wrong advice along the way. 
And I think that really speaks to how much of a mystery there still is around your finances. Very smart people are wrong about their money. And so I think that's what led to a curiosity about the topic. That's really why I ended up joining Goldman. For me, it seemed like a foray into this new world that I was very unfamiliar with, but I could still play to my strengths. I could use my engineering degree, right? And actually, that job at Goldman honestly raised only more questions than answers, right? So I decided to get a real degree. That's when I got my MBA at Duke and more seriously began a study of finance and then ended up working in investment banking, which ultimately led down this path that I've walked down. I think it was born like many other career transitions. And I'm I'm actually sure that this is true of you as well from curiosity, right? Like a desire to understand. Yep. And that's where it began. Super, super interesting. And you touched exactly on where I wanted to head next about your time at Goldman and then you head to Duke for your MBA. How did you make that decision to come to America? Was it something you always expected to do or something that just popped up out of the ether and you decided to take the opportunity? Yeah, I think it was tied to, you know, working at Goldman. Fun fact, I interned at Goldman in 2008. <laughs> oh, was my gosh. An interesting year to be there. I was part of the intern class and we called it the year the fruits went away. This sounds strange, but at the time, actually, the fruit carts, there were like tons of snacks. The like, <laughs> in-office supplies were nearly infinite. And obviously, you know, thanks to the 08, 09 crash, a few things changed within financial services firms. And so it was really interesting through the summer to see the shifting stance at the company. I think I was honestly part of an, a historic moment without actually realizing it at the time, right? And it yeah. led to like a real curiosity, again, a desire to understand what happened, what systems were in place, like, yeah, how does this not happen again? And so it just led to a series of questions that kind of took me deeper and deeper into particularly the U.S. financial system. Got it. And I wanted to kind of get some of those questions answered. And it seemed like the easiest way to do it was to actually study in the U.S. And I had built some knowledge through my time at Goldman, right? So yeah. that's really how I decided on moving to the U.S., I will honestly say I was looking for someplace warm because I didn't want to move <laughs> to New York when I moved from India. Uh, I was like, Duke's a great school. It's in the South. That's amazing. <laughs> well, you know, my South Asian heart beats strong. So, I mean, it was a great decision. It's a very diverse school. You have friends from a lot of different places. It has served me really well. But that's really what brought me to the States. Yeah. No, I love that. And it's so funny what you say on weather because I feel like it's really underrated as a key decision factor for a lot of South Asians because my when my dad came here in the 80s, he spent a lot of time in Delaware, New York, Chicago, and then he was like, I had had it and I was moving to the South so I could get warm weather again. So that really resonates. I think for a lot of people, especially if they were working in U.S. financial systems or any financial system during the 08 crisis, that really marked a moment where they were like, I want nothing more to do with this industry. You end up being at Goldman, you end up going to Royal Bank of Canada, both hallmark financial institutions. What continued to draw you to this world? What specifically just captured you? Yeah. So investment banking is a tough job, 
and all the criticism is fair. People are overworked, you know, and I think there is less of a focus on developing a whole person. And it's certainly true that a public cares about that a lot more than any of my early bank employers ever did. But part of what's also true is that the work is actually extremely interesting. I mean, you're working on just the most transformative moments of a company's life, whether that's an IPO or an acquisition, working alongside usually CEOs who have spent countless hours trying to build these businesses and then trying to decide whether this is the right path for them going forward. So just seeing those decisions and being part of them and helping make that happen, helping enable those decisions was honestly super fascinating. So I think that's part of what drew me in, particularly working in investment banking. And Wall Street is big, right? Like my specific experience is really on the strategic advisory side. And it's actually really fun. You see moments that, frankly, a lot of people just don't really get to experience. And that was what drew me in. However, what drew me to leave were some of the things I talked about. I do think that you know you can have rewarding careers, which also actually speak to your values, particularly my specific values, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about. And that's kind of what drew me down the startup path after. Yeah. Super, super interesting. No, I I mean, I spent a summer in investment banking and then a full-time experience in private equity. And yeah, it is, it's very tough, but it's also the most I've learned in such a short period of time compared to any other experience I've had. So that makes a ton of sense. So you just touched on this, but I want to hear a little bit about, okay, you spend this time at all these hallmark large financial institutions, this very corporate environment, and then you end up pivoting to the world of fintech by joining Moneyline in 2017. What compelled that decision? Yeah, I guess the part that's not entirely obvious from my resume is that I actually left investment banking without a job. Wow. I decided to go all eat, pray, love and <laughs> travel the world. It was really a moment of reflection for me. And part of what drove that was Look, again, I think it's exciting work. You see all the tra- these transformative moments in a company's life, but I really felt like I wasn't building something, right? And I think actually for listeners of your podcast and for you as well as you go through time, I think it's really important for you to know where you sit on kind of the principal agent spectrum. And this is a well-known theory. It's a framework that exists. Yeah, I think some people thrive as principals building stuff and other people thrive as agents, advising, enabling. And for me, clearly just the advisory space was not a good fit. I really wanted to be building something. And maybe this goes back also to my engineering roots. And so I I quit knowing only vaguely that I wanted to play to both my engineering skills as well as my finance skills. I wanted to sit in between those two things I didn't quite know what that would look like. Took some time off to decompress, honestly, just make sure I had a strong compass around where I wanted to go next. And it took some time to find that. Once I felt like I knew the direction I wanted to go in, I jumped back into it. And fintech was a natural fit, right? Like literally sits in the intersection of finance and tech. And I joined Moneyline when honestly no one had heard of it. As a Series A company, it was still really small. And I 
went on to lead basically the finance and data teams and left as VP of finance before I joined public. Wow. I want to spend a second on this eat, pray, love hiatus that you took from the working world, because I think it's pretty uncommon that people do this stuff and then they take a break from the working world because, I mean, more less so in the pandemic, but I think there's just this general pressure of like, you should have your next job lined up before you leave your current one. What compelled you to do that? And what did you learn over the time you spent exploring and traveling? Yeah, I fully agree with you that people don't do it as much. And I actually do think that's unfortunate. I think creating space to think is honestly a privilege, but also one of the most important things you can do as you shape your career. And I think it's because of the fact that most of us actually have very squiggly line careers. They're not linear, right? Yep. But how do you figure out where kind of the next turn comes? You have to create the space for those ideas to emerge. And I had that time during that period. So what prompted it was really knowing that investment banking was not a fit, but not knowing what was. Yeah. And so during that time, in addition to focusing on myself, my relationship, you know, investing on my personal side, I had tons of conversations, very open-ended, just coffees with people from various walks of life. I really just wanted to know what people were doing in their jobs, which really no end, right? And actually the opportunity and Moneyline came up out of one of those coffees. One of my mentors put me in touch with the then COO, who's no longer at the firm, and I really just kind of wanted to know what, what he did and what Moneyline was all about. We, we spent like 30 minutes and he's like, this is super interesting. You know, let's see if we can make something happen here. And a week later, I was actually working there. Wow. And so it kind of came up out of nowhere. But I think it came from creating the space to have open-ended conversations, which I think are really important. Most people have not figured out their entire lives and careers. Yep. And I think we should all create space to be surprised. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I ended up taking a little bit of time before I transitioned to my next role after spending time in private equity. And I think it's the most self-growth that I've been through in recent memory. So I really appreciate that sentiment. You just touched on the fact that your mentor helped you find kind of this new role in the fintech space. And I don't think that's something that we talk about enough, particularly within the financial industry. It's not usually always easy for women and particularly women of color to find senior mentors they can look up to just because of industry dynamics and the way people at the top are and and the way things have worked for a really long time. How have you navigated that and how have you worked to change that with the work you're doing with some of these women's organizations? Yeah, that's completely true. I think that mentorship relationships are honestly a gift and they don't easily come by. Having said that, I have found that most people actually want to help and want to be part of your lives. I think kind of the counterintuitive thing with mentorship is that people love being asked to help and most people are shy too, right? If you think about like an outreach to someone, right? you're more likely to think, how can I help them versus how can they help me and just ask for that. But actually, people really want to be asked, I think. People people want to be asked how they can be helpful. And so a big part of it is just really setting up, again, the space for those conversations. And the way you do that is 
just frequency of contact. Um, my theory around this is it's really not like quantity of time. You don't need to have, you know, lunch with your mentor every month. You just need to do it at a cadence. So just every three months, send an update to the people who have helped you so far navigate yeah. your life, right? Like it's really simple. It can be an email update, can be totally open-ended, or you can ask for something specific. But just do it every three months. Just send an email. It's not about like spending a ton of time. It's really about taking people along with us on our journeys and lives. So th then when I, I left investment banking, I emailed a variety of people. And the, this mentor was the one who actually had hired me into investment banking at RBC. And then he had wow. moved on from RBC to another firm. His name is Devin Rich. He's awesome. And he was incredible. He put me in touch with seven other people who could be helpful and checked in on my progress and just immediately picked up from my note that, you know, I was looking for my next opportunity and needed help working through it. Wow. I think there are some power connectors like that in all of our lives. Yep. And finding them is really just, it's a matter of making sure the people in your life are up to date about your progress and then creating the space to ask for help, really, or ask for advice through those situations. And frequency, I think, is really key. Once a quarter is a great frequency, in my opinion, yeah. for these updates. And I really love the second part of your question, which is how am I doing this for the people in my life? I try to approach it three ways. One is in the spaces that I work in, to be completely available to all the women or minorities or people of color at the firm. I'm here to have a conversation at any point. And just creating that space, I think, is really important. Just, yep. I try to make sure that people know that they can reach me about anything, whether it's editing an email or, <laughs> no, or, or dealing with a manager situation, any of that, make myself available there. Two, build teams that look like the teams that I would like to be part of, right? Yeah. And so build diverse teams. I have incredible women on my team, and those are the kinds of teams that I would like to be part of going forward. And so I have that agency and I use it, right? Yeah. And the last is to invest in a line with organizations who are doing this for other women, right? And a key part of that right now, you alluded to it, is women creating change. Women creating change actually creates opportunities for particularly women of color to participate in constitutional processes, literally just local elections and things in our life that actually move the needle for your daily experience. Wow. Those resources barely exist. There's no childcare. There's no access to information. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about national elections and they're really important. But truly, actually, for most of us, the things that matter to our lives the most is what happens in our city, in our backyard, Locally. right? And yep. so WCC is very focused on creating better outcomes for women of color in New York City. And I think we should show up with our time and our money for organizations such as that. Yeah. Wow. I love that. And I also love the advice you gave around mentorship and keeping up with people that have had an impact in your life. And I think a testament to you talking about the type of teams you're trying to build is I realize that public is actually 40% women and 45% people of color, which is to me, astonishing in the world of fintech. I don't know what the other numbers look like, but really, really just impressive and exciting. Yeah. And going back to your point about how do we create these spaces, that's exactly why I joined public, right? 
strong values alignment. In addition to, I think, being a very promising company on finance fundamentals, right, Uh, just going out to a set of people that are traditionally underserved, which means that we're able to attract users at attractive acquisition costs, et cetera. All of the finance fundamentals are super strong. It's a huge market, which is underserved, but also it aligns extremely closely with my personal values, right? There's a real interest in building an inclusive market for everyone, but also an inclusive company to reflect that market. And this shows up in our numbers. Our community, like you said, is 40% women, 45% people of color, we think the next generation of influencers of finance influencers will be born on public. Wow. And if they haven't been already, and many of them don't look like what you would think of when you use the term trader, right? Yep. And so building that inclusion community is a huge focus. And this is honestly part of why I'm at public today. Yeah. While we're on the topic, I want to spend more time talking about public and your journey to the company. How did you get recruited to be CFO? I've said this in a couple forums. Being in Moneyline, I had a front row seat into the world of fintech, right? Like particularly D2C fintech. I've seen a number of different business models and some great, very well respected companies that are built in the space, but all of them started to resemble one another, right? And all of them basically launched an investment account, a debit card, and a credit card, and basically started looking more like each other, but also looking more like Chase or Wells Fargo, right? Yep, all the traditionals. Yes, exactly. And so it's a path that could succeed. uh, And there's a lot of companies walking down that way. But I, it's just a very capital intensive path and honestly, one that was just not very interesting to me. So as I looked around, right, I was looking for a company that was honestly doing something different for consumers, truly just had a differentiated business model. I was lucky that, you know, a recruiter called me about public and I was wary of taking another D2C fintech call. But the more I learned about public, the more interested I became, right? Because the thesis here is completely different. And and that thesis is how do you build a relationship with a customer, right? In most of the companies, that relationship is built literally by getting your direct deposit. If you have a direct deposit, the thesis is, you know, well, consumers don't like switching direct deposit, they'll stay. That to me is a very defensive strategy, right? Yeah. A positive strategy that's likely to work over the long term is be actually useful to your customers. And the way we do that is by bringing together the community around investing, right? So every time you log into the public app, you usually learn something. And so there's value in every interaction, which is what brings people back and drives longer lifetimes, basically, within the app. So that difference in the business model was one of the key parts of why I wanted to join public. And then beyond that is really a strong values alignment. There's many companies that you know have lofty mission statements, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was just the authenticity around this goal, yep. right? And this continues to be true every day on the job. People really want to build an invested app for everyone. And an app that, you know, as according to our mission, makes the public market work for all people. 
everyone shows up motivated to do this every day. That authenticity kind of shown through. And lastly, I think it's a very compelling team. Yeah, It's an awesome team with a very supportive group of investors. And all of those things, I think, make it the perfect confluence. Wow. Really, really amazing to hear about the path and the values alignment. That seems to be a very common theme in what you look for in different opportunities. I want to delve more into the community aspect of public. But before that, you mentioned that you were wary of taking another D2C fintech call. I'm curious why that is. Well, it, it again comes back to the business model conversation that we had, right? I just felt like many companies were going after the problem set in very similar ways uh, without really any fundamental evolution in the business model, which I think public is, you know, finally done. And make no mistake about it, we still have a lot of work to do. We're still relatively young. We're, you know, two years in yeah. and there's a ways to go and there's a ton of exciting you know, updates on the come. But I think it's inarguable that we're attempting to do something that others aren't. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that it's two years old. I recently spent time at a startup and I think the startup world and generally joining startups and the hype around it, I feel like has really blossomed over the last couple of years. But a lot of people still associate significant risk with going to work for a very young company. How did you come to terms with that and decide that this was still a world you wanted to be a part of? Yeah. I mean, not to quote a movie, but honestly, the cool thing about the level of risk is the level of responsibility that it comes with, right? Another thing that is true of everyone in public is that you wake up knowing that the things that you're working on are going to have an impact. There's usually not much fluff in the things that you show up to work on every day, right? And this was one of the things that drove me crazy about investment banking. I'm sure you had that experience and you know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. There was just a ton of wasted work. Oh, yeah. With lots of smart people around the table. It was just a ton of inefficiencies, bureaucracy in the system. None of that exists at a well-run startup, right? I mean, not all startups are well-run. Yep. You should do your homework. I would argue that having a strong principles focus, which we do, really helps to remove some of that dysfunction. But it really comes down to, for me, the level of impact that you show up and have every day. Yep, absolutely. What do you have purview over day to day in your job? So I run finance, data, and people. That means everything around managing targets, setting targets for the firm, capital optimization, getting ready for fundraisers when that's necessary, and constantly thinking about how do we shore up our balance sheet, right? So that's everything on the finance side. I'm a big believer in having a central data team that provides single source of truth data for the entire firm and having that work really closely with finance to ensure that the data teams and the work that they're doing aligns along with overall strategic goals. So I oversee the data team as well, as well as people. People are everything at a startup. And so constantly thinking about, are we ensuring that new joiners are having the best experience, measuring engagement from time to time? Those are my three areas of outlook at, at this point. As we grow, that'll change, right? Like as with any startup, but yep. Super, super interesting. And I want to go back to the community aspect that you touched on earlier, because I think it's what makes 
public particularly unique and brings it to the kind of the contemporary era of what where I at least think investing is heading. Public stands out from other investing apps because it integrates the social networking aspect, but it's also received criticism for it because there are concerns about people taking financial advice from strangers. How do you respond to those concerns? So key thing is public is a fully verified social network, right? And the reason why this is extremely important is because it's usually the completely anonymous sites where those risks are highest, right? Basically, it leads to what is traditionally known as pump and dump risk. And this is, you know, actually a technical term. You can pump up a stock and then sell out of it, right? Those risks are reduced in public because you can actually see, you can literally go to every single person's profile, see what they're trading in, see what their portfolio is, right? And because every user goes through identity verification, it's just a much safer social network and potentially, honestly, a model that we'll see other social networks move more closely towards. You're starting to see this with Twitter's blue check mark, right? With the verification. That's really how you create a safe space. And the second is we have a very active community team, right? Like constantly monitoring the conversation on the platform. We're paying a lot of attention to how are people interacting? How are people posting? Most users are very good about caveating that they're not providing investment advice encouraging people to go off and do their own homework. Every community has its fabric and its tone, right? And I think the tone at public is very much do your homework, go off and do some research and then come back and talk to us about what you found. And that's exactly the kind of space we want to create. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I mean, it's funny when you're talking about pump and dump, I just feel like a lot of these conversations and jargon is entering the normal layperson who isn't just from the world of markets terminology and word bank because of what recently happened with GameStop and Robinhood. And from my perspective, it seemed like apps like Public were blowing up in the wake of that whole fiasco. How did that impact your work? How did it impact your outlook on the industry? Yeah. So one, in terms of growth, well, we did see tremendous growth as a result of GameStop, right? I think it's good if events like that make people interested in the markets. So what we've seen at public is, you know, people may enter with an interest in trading a GameStop share, but they usually stay for the conversation around the community and what they're learning, right? And so I think it's good to have events that bring people into the markets more because I truly believe in it as an effective tool for building long-term wealth, right? But How did it change our stance? I mean, in the wake of GameStop, that's when we announced that we were moving away from payment for order flow, right? We think that people should participate in the markets. We think there's lots of platforms that do that. However, we strongly believe that the incentives of the platforms themselves need to be aligned with the end customers, right? Yes. And so that was really a big focus for us going through GameStop and announcing the move away from payment for order flow. And that actually was very well received by multiple parties, not just consumers, anecdotally from you know investors and regulators. And I think that it is a business model that has come into the crosshairs of regulators and it should be examined, right? Yep. It does put consumers' interests at odds with the platforms that they trade on. 
Absolutely. And for the sake of our listeners, payment for order flow is a business model adopted by most brokers in the United States and platforms like yours where online brokers in the U.S. get paid by market makers to send information and your trades to them. And that practice is called payment for order flow. You guys obviously made the decision to depart from this model in the wake of all that. Some people say that that business model was unfairly made the scapegoat of that whole situation. What is your view and outlook on it? And how are you guys trying to set a new standard of how you make money in the industry? Yeah, I mean, I think our view on it is pretty clear, right? Like we do think that it puts platforms at odds with the customers because in addition to being very similar to, you know, the Facebook and Google ad model that has also come under scrutiny, the inherent problem there is that it doesn't put the consumer in the driver's seat, right? Like you don't get to have a choice. But the second thing is also it does segment retail order flow from the broader market. Many of these trades are executed in like dark pools off from the broader market, which is also not good for customers' execution, right? So we do think that the model affects best execution or the ability to deliver best execution. And it's one that more companies will hopefully move away from. In terms of business model, We think we have a compelling alternative, right? We launched basically a tipping model, which allows customers to reward the platform for their experience on it. And this has actually been going really well for, it's still early days. So we launched it only a few months ago, but we think that's a totally tenable replacement for payment for order flow. In addition to that, there's a number of other ways in which we plan to make money. We've announced some of this publicly already. That includes launching crypto, for example, or launching a subscription product, right? Maybe if you want access to advanced market data, maybe we provide that through a subscription. We're pushing more and, you know, we'll talk about all this more publicly over time, but really being the platform for retail investor relations, right? We launched a tool called Town Hall, which is essentially an AMA format integrated right into the public app. Customers love it because they get to pose questions directly to the CEOs and COOs of publicly traded companies. The companies love it as well because many of the questions are very long-term oriented and demonstrated an interest in the long-term health of the company. So I think that's a really interesting avenue for us. So we're really pushing on a ton of different fronts, which leads to overall monetization and makes us you know, less dependent on trade-dependent monetization, such as PFOF. Yep, absolutely. I'm sure the transitioning out of that model was one of the bigger decisions that fell under your purview. What are some of the other bigger, difficult decisions that have come up for you while in this role? I think the role of a startup CFO is a really fun one because ultimately what you're doing is actually making an asset allocation decision pretty similar to a customer or the platform, right? Are we making the right bets and are we doing it in the right sequence is really the question that a startup CFO has to ask. A big part of that is making sure that we're actually measuring those decisions, right? So building out that data platform, some of the data work that I talked about is a really key part of that strategy. And so I think really the larger decisions for me have been around 
putting the right people in place to build out as part of this overall strategy and then educating people on startup finance metrics, which are extremely different from big company finance metrics and things that you learn in corporate finance or in your one-on-one class. And so that's also a pet project of mine, getting people to just know what matters to the company and then making daily decisions to affect them. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. I feel like, I mean, I'm curious to hear from your perspective, was there a learning curve for you or was it scaling down this really deep in Excel financial knowledge to fit it to a bigger picture startup? Oh, there's absolutely a learning curve to working at a startup. And if you, I think, have a growth mindset, you actually appreciate the kind of learnings that startups offer, right? Because they're extremely focused, again, only on the things that matter. There's a ton of financial metrics. There's a lot of different things that you look at at larger companies. I think paradoxically at startups, you actually only look at a small range of metrics. But the key thing is to figure out which ones actually matter for your company. And that's not always obvious. And so building a first principles mindset is extremely key to figure out what those particular metrics are for the startup you're in. So there's absolutely a learning curve to startups. However, I think coming in with a growth mindset as well as an approach based on first principles is the way to pick it up quickly. Yeah. It's so interesting because I feel like the motif that keeps emerging with you as a person and the role that you're in right now and public as a company is this theme around financial education, making that more accessible, providing that sort of education to the people around you. I'm curious how you feel your identity as a South Asian, as a woman, as someone who immigrated here many years ago. How has that impacted your outlook on making this accessible to people who traditionally haven't had access to financial markets? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to being able to relate with people to whom this is completely new right? Whether that comes down to startup metrics or whether that comes down to my customers within the company are really the entire company, right? I want them to understand what factors drive our financial success. And in turn, everyone at the company is doing that for our own customers, right? What factors drive them to their financial success? And there's two things I think that enable both things. One is build a company that looks like the community you want to build. So we're super focused on diversity and inclusion within the company. That enables us to bring in the viewpoints that we may be missing, right? Yeah. And so that's extremely important. And the second is just transparency. We were very clear about if you go to our website, you'll see exactly how we make money as a firm. And that's equally true internally, right? People know what metrics move the needle for us and why, what we need to achieve. So I think the combination of building an org that looks like the goals that you want to achieve, that looks consistent with the goals that you want to achieve, and two, just focusing on transparency and authenticity, those two things kind of enable both, right? Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense that Internally, you have to build a community that serves as a bit of a microcosm of the community you ultimately want to serve. Yep, that's exactly right. What's the hardest part of the job? Oh, that's that's a really good question. I think it's just the context switching, 
And actually, this may be true for you in your new role, but every day looks completely different. You could be talking to an auditor in the morning or, you know, uh, working with one of the interns, talking to an auditor about some detailed accounting issue or trying to pull a few dimensions and look or think about kind of our data model or deal with a people issue or maybe not even an issue, right? And have a mentoring conversation with one of the interns in the firm. And all of that could happen literally in the space of 90 minutes. And <laughs> it happens again and again, right? So the, the context switching is probably the hardest thing. It's important to try and stay organized. I do my best. It's also what makes it really fun, but it's also. Yeah. Yeah. So in contrast to that, what motivates you? What gets you excited to wake up every day and go to work? Oh, man. 100% it is working at a company where I feel like I'm working alongside believers in achieving this goal, right? Just working at a mission-driven company where I really do feel like the team is coming together in a way to achieve it. That's extremely exciting. To honestly serving to bring women into positions of leadership, whether that's within the company or whether that's people on the platform who are going to be tomorrow's finance influencers. That's super exciting to me and really important. And lastly, I just learn so much every day. Yeah. I think that the continued education is a huge part of it. Yeah. No, that that's really exciting. And it sounds like a fun job and one that I would definitely be excited to wake up and go to every day. As you said at the start, the dots connect backward, but what is a part of the story we're missing? What is something that people immediately looking at your resume or hearing the story wouldn't know about you? There's two things. One, it may look like I kind of knew exactly where I wanted to end up, but I honestly didn't, right? I just pursued the key questions that I had at the time. I think my next step was always unlocked by curiosity more than like some long-term plan. And I think that may not be obvious if you look at the path. And the second thing is also something we spoke a little bit about, which is I had a lot of help along the way, just people who believed in me. I use this line a few times. I think that best managers and leaders spot potential in you before you do. And I try to do that for my teams and for the org. And so I was very lucky to have those kind of angels in my life. And I really want to do that for more people as I go through life. Yeah, that's a really beautiful and meaningful sentiment. I appreciate you sharing that. I'm curious what you would say to young South Asians who are interested in, but nervous about or skeptical of getting into financial markets and starting to invest. What advice or words of wisdom would you offer them? Join public. (laughs) (laughs) Start small, right? You don't have to take big bets. And this is a very core thesis at public. We were actually the first to launch fractional investing. Start small and you learn, honestly, as much from gains as you will from losses but surround yourself with a community that can push you and educate you. And I think public is one of those sources. Wonderful. Well, you heard it here first, everyone. Go check out public. Shruti, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time. This was a really fascinating conversation for me as someone who's spent a little bit of time in the world of finance, but not fintech and has personally been fascinated by all that public is doing. And the access they're providing to people who traditionally haven't felt the need to go and invest or felt that that was accessible. So 
Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so excited to keep up with your journey. Thank you so much, Simi. I really appreciated all the questions and I look forward to staying in touch. This was wonderful. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.